Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's podcast is on innovation and the future of professional services, and our guest is AJ Raju, the CEO of Dilworth Paxson. Hello, AJ. Welcome to Left Foot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. AJ agrees that you can't differentiate a professional services firm by offering solely smart people and prior success. Differentiation requires a focus on innovation, problem anticipation, and strategic alliances that look at resolution from a variety of specialties. AJ, I've given our listeners some insight into your work. Can you expand on what I've said? First statement uh, that law firms can't just uh, offer to the client base or to the community or the industries just uh, uh, a host of smart people with experience in law. But all great law firms are built at the intersection of relationship, value, and judgment. Law firms are unique uh, in, in many ways uh, because the relationships that lawyers and, and law firms have uh, transcend just one area. I mean, they, they're public, private, you name it, they're global, local, national. Um, the law firms today, the way they're managed and the way they're incentivized, because it's a collection of entrepreneurs who closely guard their own relationships because they're not incentivized properly, because origination matters, how you get compensated matters. There's not a lot of cross-selling that happens internally within law firms. But imagine if you unleash the potential of those relationships, institutional relationships for the benefit of not only the clients, but also the industries in which they participate. That is a powerful powerful resource that is currently untapped. Uh, some great law firms tap it more uh, uh, more accessible, uh, more readily than uh, other law firms do, but most law firms are not at a point where they can really take advantage of the great relationships and the multifaceted relationships that law firms have. Second intersection is, is value. Uh, most lawyers uh, provide value in multiple forms, and some call it euphemism, you know, is, is the idea of discounts, but that's not real value for clients. Um, value can also be, you know, for difference between a lawyer and a counsel, as lawyers uh, do a technical job of reading a statute or reading a case law and providing advice. Counsel do a counsel does a lot more than that. A counsel is the conciliary who thinks about the problem before the client even gets there. Has a chirotic dream or a moment that is pregnant with opportunity for a client conceives it before even the client thinks about it and puts them into that position. For example, a lawyer or a law firm with relationships uh, within the municipal arena can bring entrepreneurs uh, to an opportunity even before the legislation is enacted because they have usually access or they have knowledge and they can create new industries for clients that way. That's value. That's value that is separate from giving great legal advice. Judgment. You know, the, the difference between lawyer and counsel, again, lawyer reads a statute and gives you their their off-the-rack judgment. The great counsel that we know about, that we write about and write about, uh, their, their judgment is bespoke. Uh, it's customized uh, and tailor-made for the uh, client uh, that they're serving. So, so I think the idea that you can be an institution that believes in tapping the potential of relationship making sure the value is multifaceted and the judgment is not uh, off the rack but is, that is bespoke, that combination is institutional. I think that is unique and that differentiates from other law firms. So that leads to a lot of questions. Thank you for that response. Uh, do you think it's necessary that a law firm, a group of lawyers that are working on particular cases focus in an industry or really stay 
within a particular sector so they can have more experience or bring more knowledge of that industry to well, the work they do. Well, it's, it's, it's always nice if you have a specialized skill and um, we, we don't do, most law firms don't do at least commoditized work. The challenge and the goal is to do specialized work that requires a specific skill set, that requires years of refining, and uh, uh, that nuanced uh, knowledge is what clients crave, uh, at least from the, uh, the, the separation between good and the great law firms. So yes, it matters if you have um, lawyers within the firm or institutional knowledge that is so particular about the company as well as the industries, not only looking to see where the horizon is for those clients, but also anticipating what's beyond the horizon for them. That requires not only knowledge about the law, but also the trade groups that they're part of, the industries that they're part of, the shifting landscape of the companies and, and, and the various uh, factors that could influence the fortunes of those companies. So a, a, a lawyer, uh, while technically sound, is valuable. A lawyer that is uh, really knowledgeable about the industries in a global context, uh, in a more nuanced context, is. Uh, um, uh, you, you know, it's uh, uh, more than just value. I mean, those, those people just don't exist. Once you find them, um, uh, they're, they're irreplaceable. AJ, you were named the CEO and the co-chairman of Dilworth Paxson 19 months ago. What have you experienced in the last 19 months that was surprising? Well, uh, you know, now I'm uh, uh, the executive chairman and CEO, so that was a little surprising because, uh, <laughs> you know, typically law firms uh, do not bring in somebody from outside and uh, parachute them down uh, and allow them to lead another firm. Uh, usually it's organically grown and you uh, you have to uh, earn the trust and confidence of the partners that you're serving eventually. Uh, this firm did it a little differently, you know, instead of uh, waiting for the white p uh, puff to come out and selecting their pope, they asked the Dalai Lama to join them. So I was literally an outsider who walked in. So what was surprising for me was how quickly they really embraced me and and they didn't put up obstacles. Uh, first, uh, they recruited me as their leader up front. Um, so that was not the surprising part. What was surprising was I came in with some bold ideas, bold at least for the law firm context, perhaps not so bold in just general industry context. Um, and for a firm that is such a white shoe, uh, old uh, fashioned at least firm that has a reputation for being such a dominant firm uh, historically, and as well as today, but uh, definitely being a white shoe firm, I thought some of the changes that I was proposing uh, would have been viewed with jaundiced eyes, uh, and that was not the case at all. I mean, the the amount of enthusiasm and embracing uh, new ideas and bold ideas uh, was a little surprising because I expected more of a sales job, and I didn't have to sell it, uh, sell them at all. Uh, when we articulated our vision uh, about four months after my arrival here, I spent the first four months what I call the quiet phase, which is difficult for someone like me. Uh, but I spent the first four months auditing, talking to our partners, what I call the shareholders, and then I spoke with also over 60 coffees, lunches, and dinners with stakeholders. These were people outside who have an affinity towards Dilworth or have an opinion, either their clients, their industry folks who know our firm, just learning from them about who they think Dilworth is, what they think we were, and what they think we ought to become, both internally and externally. And based on their feedback and also some of the ideas that I already had, uh, preconceived ideas, we came up with a vision. I expected a long uh, period for 
the sales cycle for articulating the vision and setting in the place and the and the, and the apostles, if you will, who would spread the gospel of the new vision uh, before it became a new religion, and wasn't necessary. Everybody came in with their own gallon of Kool-Aid, and um, uh, they hit the ground running right away, which was which was remarkable. Which was remarkable for an awful environment. In the plan, what I understand of it, it's you know really changing the law from to focus on innovation and really to return to that mindset of counsel you spoke about earlier. You know what what is the progress? been so far? Well, you know, we, we've implemented three platforms. Um, one is what we call the CEO Council. Second is called the Exchange. And the third is um, uh, Dilworth Ventures. The first, a CEO Council. Um, we appointed 10 uh, luminaries in our region uh, and also people from outside, two global folks, uh, but eight at least from the Philadelphia region. Folks like John Fry, who uh, president of Drexel, and Richard Vague, uh, credit card magnate, our leading philanthropist in our region, plus uh, uh, leads Gabriel Investments, our, our leading early stage venture fund, Rudy Carson, who had a ten-digit exit with IBM, uh, with IBM, he sold Connexa to IBM, runs a fund called Carlani, also runs Two One Five Capital, which I'll explain in a second, um, and folks like that, so Dean Joanne Epps from Temple Law School, et cetera, et cetera. So there were ten that we asked to um, panel as the CEO council. We, we did that intentionally because in order to uh, disrupt the model of what law firms are, uh, I felt we needed people from outside who have knowledge about how other industries govern themselves to give us new perspectives on how we run. And the logic being, you know, we wanted to open the windows of our homes the fresh breeze to not disrupt the furniture and the people inside it, but at least bring some new perspectives in. And I think that's exactly what these leaders have done. Um, they have reimagined the contours of our own potential because they look at it with fresh eyes. And, and they have uh, allowed us to test some basic assumptions and, and uh, push the envelope on, on, on few things that we thought would not have been so easy to execute, and they, were, they did a good job. The other strategy behind it was, you know, in order to brand the other two platforms, the Exchange and uh, Dilworth Ventures, uh, we wanted to make sure that there, were, there was an early release. So one of my branding strategies always has been, you know, I whisper in people's ear while they're sleeping, so when they wake up, it becomes their dream. And it's easier to do that when you're not the lawyer saying that you're going to do something that is um, a disruptive or a new model for law firms. It's easier when other venture capitalists or heads of institutions say that we are all participating in the development of the next two platform. So with that, the next platform is the exchange. The exchange, think of it as a physical space. Um, so the 33rd floor of Dilworth Paxson is being gutted. It will have uh, um, nimble furniture, open architecture. Uh, you can have a TED talk there. You can have a large board meeting there. You can have a hackathon there invitation only collection of thought leaders and deal lawyers and deal deal uh, junkies sitting around crafting new things so it's, it's a place where thought is happening and it's an invitation only it's curated thought but the real reason why we did it was because we wanted this to be a collection where money hangs out in Philadelphia Philadelphia uh, is now starting a startup community just like what we have had since the 1960s in Silicon Valley and other places we have Comcast as our anchor uh, corporation in, in Philadelphia, which is our, the Microsoft of Seattle, if you will. Uh, and now you have a lot of new uh, venture funds that are coming here. More millennials are moving into the city than any other city in the country. And all of that energy will require capital. We don't have a robust capital infrastructure here. So the exchange offers that. Um, 13 venture funds have joined us. 
um, and six deals have already closed. Uh, now, we're not broker-dealers. We don't encourage people to buy into it or to invest in deals, but we, what we're doing is we're providing a facility where other venture funds are co-syndicating and participating in deals together, and, and startups can find them uh, uh, easily, uh, as well as other investors who want to come in. So it's a spot, if you will, it's a mall uh, where people who want to transact business uh, come and coexist. The last uh, platform is called Dilworth Ventures, where we have uh, a separate entity which is unrelated to Dilworth, although there will be institutional ownership within this entity, uh, which is creating a venture fund. Uh, and that fund uh, today uh, committed with 30, you know, flush with uh, 30 million in, in, uh, in capital. It's a fund that is attached essentially to our law firm. There's a component of institutional ownership in the fund. It's called two and five capital. Um, so think of it as Bain Consulting creating Bain Capital. Right. Dilworth, the law firm, is Bain Consulting. Bain Capital, while it has a uh, few or institutional ownership, is a separate business line. Uh, it is the gas tank outside of Wawa, you know. And if we're selling hoagies for a living, the gas yeah. tank is the alternative revenue stream. So a lot of progress. It sounds good. I love the idea that you came in and people brought their Kool-Aid, because that doesn't always happen, especially when you're a change agent, and I would consider you were brought in as a change agent. You may not like that term. But has there been an obstacle, something you didn't expect? You know, I, I think there was a lot of, um, it, it, when you have a firm like Dilworth, where in many ways history of Philadelphia and other uh, aspects of industry unfolded uh, at a place like Dilworth, right? So if you look outside, right now we're sitting in my office and we can see City Hall the literal belt confining the powers of City Hall is called Dilworth Park. So uh, the farm Dilworth, our namesake, has a, has a large meaning in Philadelphia, uh, uh, ushered in political reform, et cetera. But we have had multiple leaders within our firm, whether it's Harold Cohn, who invented class action, uh, our partner here, whether it was uh, uh, Secretary Coleman, then an associate who wrote Brown versus Board of Education, so we consider that our product, uh, the seminal case that uh, uh, broke the back of segregation in this country, you know, came out of as our product. First planned community, uh, uh, Levittown, was done here to deal with Paxton. So when you have a firm like this, where history has unfolded both for a region and, and many areas of law, um, there's a tendency where you live in the past, where you where, where you spend so much time reflecting on, on, on the great things that our leaders have done in the past. What our challenge was to not just be a firm where history unfolds, but also to be a firm where future is invented, but on a single day, on a, every single day. And in order to do that, we wanted them to focus on what does law mean today? We stand on the shoulders of great leaders. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of great history. But how do we evolve as the markets and, and, uh, and others evolve? Law is going through a major transition, not because we want to, just because the industries are going through it. Technology is changing the way we practice law. Uh, law today is a low margin, uh, zero growth industry for the most part, uh, because clients are expecting more value for what we used to provide uh, uh, was a menu without any uh, sort of uh, a bill attached to it. Now they want value for it. In-house departments are larger than ever. Uh, legal process outsourcing companies are doing what we used to consider commoditized work for which we build, but they're not doing it. Accounting firms uh, and other firms, uh, private equity firms, et cetera, are encroaching into our business. Small firms are, are reaching up for the big firm work. Big firms are uh, 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 bending down to do uh, uh, smaller firm work. So in that competitive landscape, um, 
you have to either come up with a way to carve a niche for yourself if you don't have geographic scale, uh, or you have to come up with a value proposition that is unique in the marketplace and that is multifaceted. So I think law is going through this tremendous transition. And the challenge for this firm was, how do we become not from a defense standpoint, reacting to the changing landscape, but from an offense standpoint, ride the wave. Uh, ride the wave uh, both for profit, but also for challenge and for disruption, because it's fun to do new things. Fantastic response, because you're right. All those things are happening in this industry. There's a lot of disruption. And I know one of the things that you did is you created teams that were a complement of relationships. And this is part of your value proposition as part of your plan. Has that been executed on? Have you delivered to clients now a multifaceted team, possibly, you know, counsel plus an MBA, counsel plus a finance expert? Has that taken place yet, or is that something you're thinking about doing? Well, I mean, I, I, uh, the, the idea of teaming up complementary skills with the corresponding needs that clients have exists with every firm. All great firms do it, uh, and. We're not unique in that aspect. What I meant by developing teams and providing a multifaceted uh, uh, solution was when you think about the exchange, when 13 venture funds are going in and out of this firm, when you think about a fund that is attached here. So in that context, when you walk into any single day at Dilworth, you may find Rudy Carson walking the hallways. Now, Rudy started a company called Connexa. Uh, he's the world's leading smart workforce guy. IBM paid $1.6 billion to prove my point. Um, author of a best-selling book, probably one of the smartest guys you will meet. Uh, he's a numbers whisperer, if you will. Um, when you have people like him walking around and you have a startup company that is a client of yours that just want basic advice, business advice, not legal advice, just to want to run through things and to have, want to expand their Rolodex, if you will. Uh, when you have folks like Rudy offering that services up, that's a value proposition. That's an offering of a team that is not, the clients are not being charged for that. That's just the extra. That's just, that's just an environment that they're part of. And that's what we wanted to create. Not everything has to be built. We wanted to create an opportunity where if an ecosystem uh, develops within the Philadelphia market where you have a new rainforest, where you can pull out the weeds and encourage the new crops to grow, and where you, you feed the young startups that have the most promise, mentoring from both business and legal standpoint without them worrying about what the bill looks like. Now what you're doing is you're investing in a, a region that will grow more abundance, and all of us, even if we take stakes in small percentage in the future, will benefit from it. But it's an investment by all of us uh, to uh, create a new climate within Philadelphia, to create that robust infrastructure. Right now, a lot of the startup uh, companies in Philadelphia uh, desperately need help with access to capital. They, they also, uh, quite frankly, uh, they, they are uh, uh, they are suffocated by the enormous expense of legal fees and other professional advisory fees uh, when they're just in the beginning just cooking up their dream. Uh, and we give them some relief earlier on uh, just because of the structure that we have with the players who are walking in and out of the office. So how about your legacy clients? Has anything changed for them in this new plan or this new world? Or are they pretty much being serviced the way they were, but with uh, more visibility, likely as to the future of the firm. Well, you know, um, 
No, all of them have to do with, they are all interested in what we're doing with the exchange, what they're doing with the venture fund, because even if they're not in the market uh, for exactly what we're talking about, whether it's raising capital or investing in new companies, they're in interested. So mm -hmm. if you're a banking client, uh, financial institution, you're interested in what is coming out of the exchange, both from folks who are making the investments as well as the startups who are being created. So the one that comes to mind is just a few weeks ago, we had a uh, nice, uh, a nice event uh, with Royal Bank, which is a legacy client, and we do some work with them. They were interested because jointly we were talking about where the financial industry is moving and the law firm industry is moving. It was an open conversation, um, and it was a select group of uh, business leaders from this region who were invited and we were talking about things. There, we have a partnership. So, an example of that is, um, uh, you know, Royal was coming in not only as a client, a legacy client, but they were interested in what's beyond the horizon and they're interested in sparking up a conversation, starting a conversation. And that that is a change. You know, they view us now differently. Where I don't think our institutional clients and legacy clients today view Dilworth as only a law firm. I think they view us today as a firm that believes in new relationships, the firm that is built at the intersection of relations, value, and judgment. Uh, uh, value and judgment. I think they probably see us more like Apple, less like Dell. You know, we no longer just make computers, but instead that we're in the business of disruptive innovation, and anything else could happen. So it could be the CEO advisory council that offers value to them. It could be the exchange that offers value to them. It could be the Dilworth Ventures that offers value to them, or it could be a combination of all of that, which suggests to them that we're free thinkers, that we are stretching the uh, outlines and the contours, and what else could be coming up next. So that draws a little bit of interest as a result. Do you feel that you're now more a CEO of a business versus the CEO of a law firm, or do you consider yourself still a practicing lawyer or more your business leader at this point? A combination of all. Law is a profession that requires a disciplined um, uh, adherence to sort of learning the skill set and, and, and refining those skills uh, through experience, through collaboration, and through research and scholastic focus. So that will never change. We're not, we don't make uh, cabinets, we, you know, so it's, it's a refined skill. So that never changes. You know, quality is never uh, in question, nor is um, a focus on making sure that we have the finest lawyers doing the best work possible. So that's always there. But today, uh, law firms are not just a profession, but they, they also have to think like businesses, and they have to, they have to be, they have to be part of the normal world. Uh, you know, uh, the special rules that may have applied to us hundred years ago just don't apply to us now. You know, we have to do the same things that everybody else does. So when clients look at their bill, um, it's right for them to sort of say, why? is one vendor. For them, we may be vendors. We may think of ourselves as something more uh, more than a vendor, as a profession, but for them it's just a bill. If you can't articulate to them the value that you are providing them, then, then and you can only do that if you have a business focus, and if you can't innovate, you can't incorporate what may be innovation in other markets and other areas or other sectors of the industry and incorporate them to see if that applies to you, whether it's technology, whether it's a bit innovative approach, supply chain methodology, or you name any of the business concepts that, uh, that people take for granted, all of them can be translated into your business. Uh, and if you don't do that, that means you're not evolving. Uh, you're circulating the same air in the cabin again and again, and I don't think clients will tolerate that anymore. The industry has shifted. People expect us to be more than just a law firm. You know, the quality of the product has to be beautiful, uh, but they expect you to deliver it in a way uh, that is most cost efficient and uh, w without sacrificing quality.
Okay, so we have the council, you know, mm -hmm. let's provide council, be a trusted advisor. Mm -hmm. And then we have the price component and, you know, whether pricing is done by the 15 minute increment or by retainer or some other way. So any thought or comment on, you know, the evolution of how we charge or how law firms would charge for their services? There's a Greek word called kairos. Kairos is a Greek word that says a moment within the continuum of time that is pregnant with opportunities. Almost every entrepreneur has a chirotic moment when they know that an idea will either make them a lot of money or will disrupt an industry. When they're going through that chirotic moment, most of them, after they have processed the chirotic thought process, call a lawyer to process the paperwork to get it done. They want to do a merger or they want to do a regulatory review of a statute or whatever it is. That's what lawyers do. And they can be technical, they can be good at it. A good counsel is the person that that entrepreneur calls as they're going through a chirotic moment because they're not calling them for legal work. They're calling them to help them process through that big idea. A great counsel has the chirotic dream on behalf of the client. We want to be an institution of great counsel. So that's what I mean by distinguishing. If you ask a client um, uh, to fret over an invoice from counsel, there's never ever usually an argument between a client and a counsel because the value is embedded in it because you're doing something more. There's always an argument, however, if, even if they don't, may not articulate it because everybody says, you know, I ate the meal, but you know, am I paying this much when the bill comes in? A lawyer may do as much work as possible, but somebody receiving it for the most, most likely will say, I probably am paying too much even if the value is probably uh, subsidized or discounted. Uh, but, you know, entrepreneurs right now, there's so much pressure to save money and to be more efficient. So every bill looks heavy. Every bill looks uh, expensive. But the challenge is to provide to clients something more than just what lawyers do. And nothing wrong with what lawyers do. We have to be technically sound and we have to be great. But that's the basic requirement. And if you can't be counsel to your client, and, um, and then I don't think you're adding that value. But if you are counsel to that client, I don't think there's ever an issue uh, between counsel and client as far as what the actual payment is. Then it doesn't matter whether you're doing a flat fee arrangement, whether you're doing an hourly arrangement, because the value is already understood. That's a very solid point. That's a fantastic point. If they value what they're going to pay, there isn't going to be a lot of uh, discussion. They'll chase it. you next time to even a bigger checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> they want to pay you more. Yeah. Yeah. So our listeners for Left Foot are global, mobile, and millennial. Mm. Any advice you would give those trusted advisors that are really looking for a home? Most of them are associates. Some are, you know, in that pre-partner track. You know, I, I think, I think uh, the millennial crowd today, especially because they have native fluency with technology, um, because I think they don't have um, the great reverence to the old law firm structure and the model because they're more transient and they want to accomplish a lot in their lifetime. Uh, they're a bit more impatient than we were probably and who were willing to do nine years of uh, uh, hard labor in order to become a partner. I, I'm so curious about what new models of business that they're going to come up with, they're going to cook up. 
I'm so curious about how technology will uh, change the landscape of what we're doing. Even today, for example, you have Google's autonomous cars, self-driving cars that do judgment over 6,000 drives, not a single accident. You have artificial intelligence that can write a novel, do a manuscript. IBM's Watson um, uh, is in medical school, can diagnose better than human doctors can. Technology exists today to replace most of our human lawyers. It won't happen right now, right away, because it's not scalable and, and uh, nobody's ready to buy it or nobody's ready to prepare it. But the technology today exists. We live in a world where science fiction used to be what we used to think about, but today, whatever science fiction writers cook up, next day some technologist is making it. So we're, uh, we're living in a, a, a time that is changing so fast, and the millennials, I think, are best equipped to, within that uh, new time frame, take advantage of the technology, not from a fear standpoint, but as an opportunity standpoint. And and I think the business models will break down. So it will be interesting to see whether or not the large law firm models will survive, whether we will have mutant firms um, that are both a hybrid of law firms as well as other uh, business interests, uh, whether we go public at some point, uh, as, as some of the European law firms are thinking about doing. Um, not don't know exactly where we're going to go, but I one thing that is probably an easy bet to make is that we're going to go see we're going to see a lot of changes, uh, not right away uh, because they're, they're the traditional model is solid enough, and you know one of the follies of success is that there is no incentive to change, and uh, law firms are still flush with. Um, all the dwindling uh, fees uh, where clients are willing to pay and law firms are surviving on, th on those things, although it's getting harder and harder uh, to uh, boast about the uh, days of old where law firms were flush with premium dollars. Now it's getting harder and harder to uh, make squeeze out profitability. Um, and, and the challenge then is to, so, to either mutate or, or to uh, be extinct. Anything else you'd like to add? Anything? That you'd like to share with our listeners about your experience? Or? Um, first of all, thank you, Nicole, for the uh, uh, for the conversation. I've, a lot of the platforms that we've implemented, there is no guarantee that any of them will succeed. Uh, the exchange has closed six deals, ranging from six million to um, uh, a deal for EcoSave to one hundred thirty million dollar deal for cross properties. Eight in the pipeline and more to go. So early indication is that it could work. But it could also fizzle and die uh, uh, before before we know it. So, uh, what's exciting for us at Dilworth is not whether or not uh, uh, five years from now, you know, we will still be standing uh, with these same ideas, uh, saying that wow, that was ahead of uh, most market and and whether they're successful. It's just the process of cooking up and thinking with a big idea and letting it go through a thousand tiny evolutions and seeing where the market takes us. Just the excitement uh, that you have in our hallways when they're looking at new ways of uh, practicing law, it seems like we're all energized from just that. So um, none of it, and I, you know, sometimes I have a tendency to speak with some confidence as though uh, we're already uh, 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 preordained or predestined for success. Uh, it's none of that. I think we, we know that uh, it's a, a steep hill that we have to climb and it's a new, these are new concepts for a new industry and uh, we're doing it because both as offense as well as defense because uh, was the market shifting and we're just adapting. But it was, a, it was a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Oh,